0: Hello and welcome to the Pacific Center podcast. My name is Jack Miller. The focus of this podcast will be the intersection of traditional healthcare practices of various cultures and the modern scientific research on peak physical and cognitive performance. This show will be delivered in an interview format. While we will be discussing some medical issues and treatments today, we will in no way be providing medical advice. As always, for any health related issues and conditions, you should seek appropriate medical care and advice from a healthcare professional, preferably your local acupuncturist. Jill Blakeway is a practitioner of Chinese medicine and the founder of the Unova Center in New York City. She's the author of two popular books on women's health, making babies, and sex again, and is the host of CBS Radio's weekly podcast, Grow, Cook, Heal. She taught gynecology and obstetrics in the doctoral program at Pacific College of Oriental Medicine in San Diego and Chicago. Jill also founded the inpatient acupuncture program at the Lutheran Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York and her research has been published in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. She was the first acupuncturist to give a TED Talk at TED Global in 2012. Her newest book is Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing. Welcome to our podcast, Jill. It's nice to see you through the technology of teleconferencing.
1: (laughs) Hi, it's good to see you. You too. It's so clever to be able to do this, don't you think?
0: Yeah, it's great. It's really... It's awesome. really changed our educational model, as you know, from the transitional doctorate.
1: Yeah, no, I bet. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Are you in New York? It changed my book tour, as you can imagine. I do a great ton of it from my living room. Uh, yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> it's a lot better than getting on an airplane.
1: It's a lot better. <laughs> yeah,
0: sure. All yeah. Right. Are you in New York?
1: I am, yeah.
0: In the city or upstate?
1: No, I'm in the city, yeah. All right. Yeah. So...
0: What I'd like to do, um, in addition to weaving in a discussion of your books, is to try to get to some sort of um, essence of what has made you successful. Right? So much of, of our podcasts are aimed at the uh, peak performance, optimization of both physical and mental well-being. And uh, we have been interviewing people to try to glean from them some wisdom in that regard, as well as, obviously, some tools of the trade of Chinese medicine. I, I think that most of our listeners are from Chinese medicine, but I think there are many that aren't as well that may want a more a general discussion. So yes. um, we just kind of see where it goes. Yeah. Um, as I kind of... Uh, uh, sent you some notes. I, I wanted to start by quoting someone that we both loved and respected so much, Alex Tiberi, who once told me that the first rule of qigong is to have fun. And I think that's really applicable both to your work and your, and your newest book, as well as to what we'll hopefully do today here. So, hopefully we'll have some fun, move some Qi. As I, as I came over here, I was thinking about um, some other questions. And I remembered one of our first symposium speakers. Dr. Tae Woo Yoo, a Korean man. I don't know if you know his work. Um, he's well known um, for the Korean hand acupuncture system. Yes. And, and that's what he was speaking out at, about at the symposium in 1989. But we had a panel on chi, you know, what is chi? And we had Ted Kapchuk and Mikishima and a lot of other notables. And, and Tae was on that panel. And, you know, I expected him to talk more about his hand acupuncture system. And he got up there and he goes, my hand acupuncture system, that's pretty interesting. He goes, but I'm really interested in healing at a distance now. And I <laughs> went, okay, <laughs> where's this going? So, um, but I, it was really interesting to see that concept was um, uh, in your book, right? Um, both um, some of the healers uh, that were working with patients but also in the research, which I think was really, really probably the most remarkable part of your book in a way. Um, Obviously the stories, um, the actual phenomenon of energy healing is fantastic in its own right. But I think what you brought was a connection back to reason, back to science, things that we could um, use to verify some of the claims that are made by various healers. I, maybe you could, um, I don't know, just kind of jump in and give me some of the, some of the stories about the most uh, impressive experiences and the most uh, interesting people that you met through your journeys uh, to create this book.
1: Well, it was a lot of fun. You mentioned fun, and <laughs> it was so much fun. And I hope that comes across in the book. HarperCollins gave me a commission that was just a dream, really. They sent me all, all around the world to um, look at healers and look at what they're doing and then ask scientists to explain it which is my passion anyway, bringing it all together. Because I, I realize we're all observing the same phenomena and then we're translating it within our frame of reference. But it's all the same stuff. So I, I wanted to to have a look um, at the science behind our connections and our healing connections. And you're right, there is science behind those connections. So for example, we are connected energetically when we're apart um, and uh, a good example of that was at the University of Connecticut, they put two people in separate MRIs and when one thought healing thoughts about the other, um, their brainwaves began to sink, which I think is fascinating. It's kind of that feeling that I have when I think about a patient I haven't seen for a decade and they're on my schedule the next week and clearly they were thinking about me, uh-huh. um, but we're, we're connecting. And as you know from the book, what I did was then I wondered what happened in my body when I'm doing acupuncture. And so I had them put an EEG on my brain and measure the energy field around my brain and an EKG on my heart, which measures the energy field of my heart. And we found that I was doing something with my vagus nerve that I had unconsciously trained myself to do, I think because I just wanted to help people. And what it meant was that my heart and my brain were going into resonance with each other which means they were going at the same frequency. And to do that, I had to slow my brain down a lot. And I don't think I'm remotely special, Jack, so I think most experienced practitioners are in all probability doing that. I was just lucky enough to measure it. But what's really interesting is that the patient's heart then goes into resonance with mine. And um, that's not due to anything particularly woo, it's actually due to something called mirror neurons. When the patient feels safe and connected, They start to mirror me, not just physically, like calm down, but also um, they start to go at the same frequency. They mirror my frequency. And when they do that, I think that's when the magic happens um, or part of when the magic happens in an acupuncture treatment. And so I was happy to have found a way of kind of measuring at least some of that magic. The book is called Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing because there's always a bit of mystery. But I felt like we'd measured some of that Um, uh, uh, intangible by being able to do that. And as I say, I think all practitioners are probably doing a version, their own version of that.
0: Yeah. You hire a number of acupuncturists in your clinics. Are you um, encouraging them to do some of the practices in your book or leaving it to their natural inclinations?
1: No, I, I have taught classes on the, this for my team uh, and they can all do it, which, which you know, lends credence to my idea that most of us actually can, if not all of us. Um, I'm a very energetic practitioner and I run the practice on energetic lines. I believe that love is an expansive energy and fear is a contractive energy. And so the way I am in business and in life is the same uh, as the way I'm in the clinic. And so they, they kind of pick that up from me. Um, I believe that patients heal when they feel safe. And if you remember in my book, and we'll probably get into me going to Japan, but Mm -hmm. Dr. Eric Pepper, the wonderfully named Dr. Pepper at San Francisco State, um, uh, had um, sent me to Japan to look at various healers that he had done testing on. And one of the things he said that all the good healers he met had in common was that they created a, a place of safety in the clinic. And that was certainly true of those Japanese healers. They were, um, you could tell them anything. They were very kind. They were very non-judgmental. And that has been my experience in practice. Unova is a very kind, warm place to come to. And in the treatment room, I create a sense of safety. I don't judge my patients, I don't second guess their choices, I don't feel superior to them because I'm not. Um, I try and give them the impression that I'm in the trenches with them because I am, I'm on my own journey, learning my own stuff. Um, and I try and be that um, uh, kind presence. And I think that permeates our whole clinic. In fact, when new front desk people arrive, there's usually a point where they get frustrated with something in their day. And someone who's been at you know for a while goes, oh, no, you can't be negative because Jill thinks it pollutes the energy. <laughs> <laughs> which is true, I do. I think you can tell a place that feels safe. I think if you walk into somewhere where there's been an argument uh, and negativity, you can feel that argument and negativity. If you walk into a church, you can feel something, Mm -hmm. which I think is... Thousands of years of people being on their best behavior, permeating the (laughs) Qi of the church. So the Unova Center is not that old, but um, our Qi permeates it. And so I'm I'm careful of um, the sense of safety we create, and I'm strict about it. Um, as as the um, uh, clinic director, not that I need to be, they're all very nice people. Um, and I think that's the most important part. But they do, they are energetic practitioners, because acupuncturists are, and I do encourage them to play into or lean into that side of the practice.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very important skill to develop as a practitioner. Um, we encourage the practitioners here to at least do a little bit of massage on the, on the patients, you know, to establish that connection. When, when I was at your clinic in New York, you also had the yang side of the chi, where you were saying that you wanted the clinic to be busy, that there be, that there should be activity at the clinic. And I I got that to have a, have that kind of prosperity it was important to have the chi flowing through the business as well so in addition to the inside of the safety and the comfort and the calmness there needs to be a certain motion there as well
1: yeah um, I, um uh, I had the same accountant for 20 years and he unfortunately died and i'm kind of lost without him he was very wise and he used to always say to me a business that isn't in transition is failing which is a hard thing to say when you're, you know, just trying to keep going. Um, but I've never forgotten it because I think it's true. I think uh, really what that means is that chi has to run through your business and um, and through your practice. So, uh, you know, but we're always coming up with interesting things to keep it interesting for ourselves, but also exciting for the patients and to be lively. So we, it is a bit of a dichotomy because we're a tranquil space, but we're a lively practice. Yesterday, I I was at the Pop Sugar events, which had thousands of people in New York coming, uh, and um, the Innova team were doing pulse diagnosis and ear seeds uh, for literally hundreds and hundreds of people. They looked so tired by team by the end of it. We had baby yoga in our Brooklyn office this week, mommy and baby yoga. We're constantly updating our social media. Our blog gets updated all the time, and I think what that is, I mean, a it gives the public the impression that we're engaged and alive and want to serve them and and are excited and happy about what we do, but it also moves chi through the practice um, sort of endlessly so that we're always in transition. We're always learning, we're always growing, we're always trying something else. I'm off to a chocolate factory this week, like Willy Wonka, because we just designed some PMS chocolate, vegan, (laughs) sugar-free PMS chocolate, and I, I get to go and see the first bars come off the uh, oh, yeah. the, whatever the machine is, I don't even know. It's going
0: to be uh, Unova chocolate bars?
1: Yeah, Unova PMS chocolate. Exactly. And it's really, do I think we're going to make a lot of money out of Unova PMS chocolate? I don't know. I don't. It, it wasn't my major motivator. My motivator was, oh my God, that's so fun. <laughs> Let's have Unova yeah. PMS mm-hmm. chocolate. Let's give it to the press. Let's have a launch. Let's just keep it' exciting. Well, we and if Chinese it works, herbs. we'll do anxiety chocolate.
0: <laughs> Chinese herbs in the, in the chocolate? Yeah. Or...
1: Yes, I, I designed the herbal formula and yeah. a very wonderful chef here, a, a natural chef in New York, designed a, a chocolate with, made with coconut oil and monk fruit rather than that sugar and... Milk fat, and um, I tasted the prototypes. We actually um, had some made for the press launch of my book, I think, um, which we did at our Brooklyn office, and they were pretty good. So we thought, well, that's it. Well, we'll go. We'll go into the chocolate business.
0: All right, but really,
1: it's great. just me trying to keep things moving and alive and exciting for everybody, for the team, for the patients, and for me.
0: <laughs> did you start out wanting to be a writer, or was that part of your kind of bigger plan to build a brand, to build your clinic? Is it part of that moving the chi? Um, or, or, or was it a, a rid, an early interest? Well.
1: People never believe me when I say this, but this is true. I never had a big plan. (laughs) And I always go, the plan is not to have a plan, people. Uh, See where we're moved. But I actually do believe that there is an intelligence in the universe. There is source energy. And uh, when you're in line with it, the next part of your path opens up. And actually, when you start to get blocked, if you look at where you're out of alignment, you can usually troubleshoot it and find what I like to call the next delicious step, the next delicious movement in your life. So I really did that. And as you know, from reading the book, which is partly memoir, um, Mm. I got stuck here and there. Mm. I needed help, a mentorship, Um, so I I didn't really have a plan, but I loved to write because I love to communicate, Uh, the same thing that makes me a good practitioner, I think, you know, I want to communicate this beautiful medicine to the patients, um, and writing is one way of doing that, so I was blogging from 2005. And every week, and my husband used to tease me, Noah, who is an acupuncturist, who I met at Pacific College, Jess. Yes,
0: yes, I know. We're taking full credit for that relationship.
1: (laughs) Many years ago, over 20 years ago. um, He would say, you do know you're blogging into the ether, don't you, Jill? Literally nobody is reading your blog. Uh And then one day, someone had read my blog, and I was so excited. And then I realized it was Noah taking pity on me reading Uh my (laughs) blog. But now we have a huge blog archive and it's still relevant and current. And so I always tell people: blog into the ether, start writing, start communicating about this beautiful medicine to um, your public, your community and build it and they will come uh, eventually.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's great advice for our alum and our grads. They really, you do need to put yourself out there. Um, In fact, in your book, you were really quite um, revealing in terms of some of the personal uh, stories, your early uh, childhood, your relationship with your mother. Um, Was that difficult for you? Did you have second thoughts about uh, its place in the book.
1: Yes, I did. Um, it, uh, I um, I think if you tell, if you write memoir, you should be honest. Um, uh, you know, you have to have integrity anyway. And um, I realized it was part of what had made me the kind of practitioner I am. You know, my great wish for people to be safe comes from being unsafe as a child and wanting to give people something I didn't have, I think, in retrospect. But I um, agonized over it and I rewrote those sections numerous times, I consulted with my editor because I wanted to be kind to my mum in the same way I'm kind to my patients. Yeah, I wanted to, um, I understood her journey. I understood why she was um, uh, the way she was. She was mentally ill. She was young when she had me. She was very overwhelmed and she was somewhat abusive, but she had also been abused. So I tried to tell her story with some compassion and I hope that came across. It was, it was sort of agonizing actually because I didn't want to betray her.
0: Yeah, I think it did. I think it was, it was both touching and, and relevant because as you said, it it did develop or increase, uh, the experience led to some of the sensitivity that you now display. So I think it, I think it was important. And um, I think in any, as you said, in any memoir or any successful story, when it's personalized, it, it becomes more compelling, more powerful. So I think it did work quite well in the book. Um, I
1: also felt when I was writing the book, Jack, that there was a lot of science I wanted to get across to a, a non-sciencey audience and so memoir and story and anecdote helped me kind of weave that through in a way so that it wasn't so burdensome Um, because I wanted people to really understand the physics and the science behind our connection. Uh, And that's difficult, I think. So I just kept weaving it. You know, when I thought it got a bit bogged down, I went back to memoir. Yeah,
0: it was really perfect balance, I must say. And I'm not just saying this. um, I really enjoyed it. I I, I did find it to be, like I said, a perfect balance between the science and the story. Um, The science was not overwhelming, but yet the bibliography, I think, is a treasure trove. And And I think our students, our alum, and anybody listening, who has an interest in pursuing the subject further is a perfect place to start. Um, I must say um, Dr. William Bankston was quite a character in your book I mean from the beginning to the end he he he, he appears and, um, and and the stories related to him are, are really fascinating um, i mean starting with the uh, the hands-on healing that he was, that he was exposed to. But yet, I mean, I, I really appreciate his skepticism because again, as a scientist, he's, he, he's able to bring more credibility by doing research, which demonstrates the results. His, um, his experiments with the lab animals and cancer is just, um, I mean, really, it's, it's, it's quite, it's, it's beyond fascinating. It's, it's really um, astounding. Um, uh, just for people listening, uh, he treated, they exposed lab rats to cancer cells that were 100% fatal within 14 to 27 days. Every lab animal is expected to die. Um, where, but they did hands-on healing with these animals and, and all of them in the experimental group survived. And then it gets crazier when they repeated the experiments and the control groups in the same room started to have good results as well. Um, and, and, and that persisted until they moved the control group well out of the building. Then those didn't get the benefits of the hands-on healing. So, um, I mean, what an incredible story. Uh, I'm surprised that it's not more uh, well-known Um, What's a little bit of his backstory and and how did you come to meet him?
1: Um, I met Bill about a decade ago, I I think now. And he had a big influence on me because his science is good science. Um, And I met him because I was conducting some research into hands-on healing in a hospital. And I wanted some advice on how to structure that study. And Bill is an obvious person to go to. And you're absolutely right. He learned, his backstory is that he learned a hands-on healing technique from a psychic healer who was quite a character himself. And he was going to test the psychic healer in the lab, a bit like I was going to do myself in the hospital. Um, and they bought the mice. They're mice that are specially bred to have cancer. And you're absolutely right. They do reliably de- die by day 27, poor mice. And um, uh, the guy pulled out. <laughs> so Bill did it himself. He, uh, he used the technique. And to his amazement, the mice um, uh, got better. They healed themselves in response to this technique. And what's more, when they were re-injected with cancer, they couldn't get it. They Their immune system, were forever changed. And then Bill did what a good scientist would do. He wondered if this was replicable. And so he got a load of skeptical students um, who didn't even know why they were doing this experiment. They thought they were taking part in an experiment into gullibility, which I'm sure they believed. (laughs) And um, he taught them the technique and all of them could heal the mice too. And good science must be replicable. We have to build on each other's discoveries as we sort of expand our knowledge base um so there's limited value in studying a special someone somewhere um, although there is some value what's what's valuable is studying a technique that can be used by anyone um, and has reliable results and they have done this is at city university these experiments they've done them on thousands of mice now and reliably um, with the occasional you know um occasionally a mouse dies but mostly it cures the mice of cancer Um, and you're absolutely right the control group um, uh, if what really happened Jack was that at some point the mice look worse before they get better, and it's <laughs> quite scary. Mm. And at some point, everybody freaked out. The students, Bill, no matter who was taking part in the early days in these experiments, they freaked out, and they went to look at the control mice to see if they looked bad, too. Mm. And when they looked at the control mice, who were mice who'd been given cancer but weren't um, uh, having hands-on healing, they looped them into what is called a meaning field. That's a term coined by a man called Imance barous from King's College in London. Um, But with their minds, they looped them into a meaning field and when they realized, uh, and the mice got better, the controlled mice. So when they realized that, they sent the control mice to a different lab when nobody could look at them, and then they reliably died. And Bill thinks that that may be part of the explanation for why the placebo effect is getting stronger. As you know, it's getting harder and harder to test drugs because the placebo effect Mm -hmm. is getting stronger and stronger, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And it may be that the placebo drug is being looped into a meaning field with the uh, active drug. And therefore, is energetically um, picking up some of its qualities. That's pretty out there, but the science suggests that that may well be true, which I think is extraordinary. So, Bill has had a big effect on me because he's just a scientist, and I don't know whether you uh, remember this bit of the book. But then he realised that he could probably that this is what he's creating is a, a information carried by a frequency. And they realized they could put the frequency into anything. So they, at at Brown University, they put it into cell medium, and then they put human cancerous tissue in the cell medium. And when I wrote the book, it had made nine genetic changes measurably in the human cancerous tissue. It was again, breast cancer tissue, tumor tissue. And when I had my book launch, uh, which was on April 2nd, 2019, um, it had made 37 genetic changes. Bill was at my book launch he was able to update us on that research which is still ongoing um so fascinating
0: oh um, i mean and then he was also involved in the random event generator research as well wasn't he
1: he wasn't but he okay. introduced me to them oh okay uh, they're fascinating too. Um, <laughs> I met Dr. Robert Jean through Bill. Okay. He has since died. He was in his 90s when I met him. Uh, but he, uh, when I met him, was the Dean Emeritus of the Engineering Department at Princeton. And for many, many years, he was the Dean uh, of the Engineering Department at Princeton, which I imagine is the least woo department at Princeton. <laughs> don't you, the Engineering Department? They're <laughs> a pretty solid <laughs> lot. I would have thought not given to flights of fancy, mm. but he, Dr. Jean had, had an extraordinary experience. He had a grad student, a female grad student, who had wondered if, as a project, she could create a machine that could be changed with the human mind. And I don't think Dr. Shan for a moment, thought that she could pull this off. But uh, and you are uh, the president of the school, you know this feeling. He was like, "Well, she should try. It'll be a nice little project for her. It'll mm. be interesting to see." Her think it through, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So she was allowed to to do this project as part of her grad uh, graduate studies, and of course, she did pull it off. Uh, and what she created was what you referred to the random event generator which thanks to decaying atomic material is a machine that produces random numbers and what she found was that when one person but more when but more importantly when lots of people at this effect got stronger but when people focused on the machine with intention and feeling the numbers became less random and the more people the more the, the more this, the numbers came into line, which is interesting. And if the people were particularly connected with each other, like a couple or something like that, the, the, they had a more powerful effect. And so to give you an example, on September the 11th, by then, Princeton had set up a, a lab called the Princeton Engineer, uh, Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, the PEAR lab. And they had sent these random event generators to universities all over the world, and they were just spitting out random numbers back to Princeton over the internet, and they were collating the information. And four hours before the planes hit the Twin Towers, the numbers started to come into line all over the world in a, in a way that is statistically impossible. And um, uh, that went on for the rest of that day. And people always ask me why four hours before, and I asked them that too. And nobody really knows. Um, they think it may speak to a sort of um, communal premonition. Or it may be because the actual events were already taking place in so much as the people who were going to commit these terrible events were already getting on planes and at airports and, you know, it was already happening. Um, or it may be that time isn't particularly linear. But for whatever reason, when we all looked in the same direction on September the 11th, all over the world, these numbers came into sequence. And they now have little portable random event generators. Um, This work is still going on uh, and, Um, people listening can look it up. It's now run by someone called the Global Consciousness Project, a man called Roger Nelson, who was part of that original pair team, has taken on the research. And they take their little portable uh, uh, random event generators to churches and yoga retreats and the Trump inaugural and all sorts of things. And what they've found is that when we bond together through love, Uh, we uh, uh, bring the machine more into sequence. And unfortunately, when we bond together through fear too, fear is a strong bonder. And we're seeing that in this country at the moment. We're seeing that all over the world, that fear and cruelty um, bond people as well as love and kindness and expansion. And so we have to be careful what we feel, (laughs) I think, and how we bond to people. Uh, It's
0: a reminder to make sure that we do our meditations in the morning, <laughs> so that yeah. our that our emotions are are balanced and more informed by love than fear. Um, yeah. And and what that research did for me, as a, a general skeptic, I I think it's fair to say, um, is um, it, it encourages open mindedness, which I think is a certainly a positive trait that we should all have. And but it's it's you know it's it's like open-minded, but what you bring into your book, but show me. Yes. Right, so not just any kind of anecdotal claim. Um, and I, again, I think the book does a really nice job with that and, and provides a, a, a great resource for anybody who is interested in, in pursuing it further. Uh, and, and the random event generator is probably the most out there. Um, yeah. I, I was joking with my staff, and I said that, that Jill found the next planet in her book, but she also provided a pathway back to Earth through the science.
1: <laughs> well, I wanted to, to find things that were measurable. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, in the book, I say, you know, my conclusion, uh, and you'll have to read the book, people watching at home and, uh, and listening at home, and, and come up with your own conclusion. But my conclusion was that we are, to a certain extent, in silent collaboration with each other and those things can be measured. There are research studies that I cite in the book that show that an interviewer interviewing someone a bit like you and I are doing now, um, starts to register the heart waves of the interviewee in their brain waves. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are affecting each other with frequency Sure. And um, that has implications for how we are in the world. It obviously has implications for those of us who are acupuncturists and are practicing an energy, one of the oldest forms of energy medicine Absolutely. ever. So um, yeah. it, that, I think that's worth noting for us.
0: One of, the, one of the things that I find very plausible, in fact, it's, and it's demonstrated in your book and many other places, is the idea of resonance the, the synchronization, let's say of our brain waves or heart waves, uh, our beat, um, that that doesn't seem too far out to me. Um, But when we talk about measurement, um, what I haven't seen yet is the measurement of the causative of the, of the causative factor, right? It's like, what is there is a is there an energy being transmitted is there you know what is it that 's creating that right to see the effect is is pretty apparent, but to see the mechanism isn 't so and and yet science has so many tools um, that measure such fine um, effects. Um, I mean, now they're detecting gravitational waves that are like zillion light years away. Um, and, and, and yet, uh, you know, are we, are we yet able to measure these um, causative factors for the, the, the resonance or the um, synchronization that we might experience among people?
1: I think we don't quite know what we're looking for. And so we don't know how to find it. I think that's what it is. So uh, I looked at experiments that you're quite right, measured the effect, like the mouse experiments that Bill did in the the lab. They have a clear effect. And um, we know something about how that works. We know it affects the immune system. Bill, when he's talking about it at its most simple, says it reminds the cell of what it is. Uh, and it comes back into order, which I think is interesting. But how does it do that? We know that it's a frequency. We know that frequencies can be measured, just like mine were of my brain and my heart. But also, qigong masters, when they measure, when they use a magnetometer and they measure the frequency coming out of their hands, it's a thousand times stronger than what is normally the strongest frequency in the body, which is the heart. Mm-hmm. So we're able to measure that. We know it's a low. Frequency frequency. And we know that low frequencies heal. Some of the best orthopedic hospitals in the the world use low frequency electricity um, to heal broken bones and soft tissue. Mm. Uh, That uh, research was done here in New York, actually, at Columbia University, and now is pretty widespread. Now, interestingly, that is the same frequency that Reiki practitioners produce. Um, uh, and so we're we're, we're seeing clues everywhere. We know, and I actually didn't put this research in the book, although it is footnoted in the book, but I didn't draw people's attention to it. Bill's brain, when he is doing his technique uh, on the mice, produces a frequency that is uh, 7.86, which is the Schumann resonance, which is the frequency of the earth, which I didn't get into in the book because I was already overwhelmed with information. I had enough information for three Books and I was like, oh, I can't get into the Earth's frequency right now. <laughs> but how fascinating is that? The Earth has a frequency. It's caused by um, at any given time there are about two thousand thunderstorms going on around the planet, and they create a low frequency which then moves around the planet at seven point eight six, and um, that's the Schumann's race called the Schumann's resonance, uh, and that isn't something woo <laughs> that's measurable. Mm-hmm. But Bill's brain goes at the same frequency. So I think we're seeing clues that it's frequency. Bill doesn't like to call it energy because he thinks that energy, well, the definition of energy in science, one of the definitions of energy is that it dissipates over a distance and this doesn't appear to. So he calls it information carried by a frequency um, uh, created by a bond, a resonant bond. Uh, and I think that's as far as we've got, or at least as far as I got in my book. Um, but I'm, I'm plowing on. I think I'm going to write another book. So I'm who knows where I'll get
0: to that? Okay, <laughs> that sounds good. As you <clears throat> traveled, and, and and particularly the the uh, people that you met in Japan, d- um, did you uh, they, they really had um, varying lifestyles?
1: Um,
0: <laughs> and and I I wondered uh, the people that you met, did they seem to have a natural talent for healing, and then did they do any particular work to develop it further, Um, you know, to practice a qigong, any kind of dietary um, regimens? Um, Was there any commonality that you found with them, or or was it really um, individual?
1: Um, there was some commonality, they had both worked. I looked at two healers in Japan, and you're right, they were very different, yeah. both as people and in their healing techniques, but they had both worked very, very hard to become as skilled as they were, and they took it extremely seriously. Um, the first healer I went to see was a monk called Hiroyuki Abe, uh, and he was quite g- gregarious. He was kind of a party monk, um, and he, he, he drank and he smoked, and he, he, was, he was a lot of fun, and I had trouble keeping up with him and um, <laughs> and Noah, my husband, came with me too. And we spent, he, he was always surrounded by lots of people, lots of students. He wasn't particularly solitary. He was a very sociable person. Uh, but in the clinic, he took his job very seriously. He created a, a big sense of safety and he told me that he had studied really hard. His backstory, though, was interesting in so much as um, he told me that he was getting a divorce and he, went to tell his mother that he was divorcing. And he was in his, I think, late 20s. He's in his sort of early 60s now. And um, he was giving her the bad news and he saw the goddess of mercy in the corner of the room. And I said to him, did you tell your mother that you saw the goddess of mercy. And he said, oh no, I'd already given her enough bad news, which was logical. <laughs> then, and this made me laugh. He said that the goddess of mercy stayed with him after that. And she was pretty rough. She was like, for the goddess of mercy, ironically, she was, he, he described her as old school. She, he said she was very bossy and old school and she made him study really hard. And um, uh, anyway, so he studied physiology and she taught him to heal. And when I asked Dr. Pepper back at San Francisco State what we should make of the Goddess of Mercy teaching Hiroyuki Abe to heal, uh, he explained that people kind of create an avatar and see they they anthropomorphize this energy and they sort of see what's in their experience. He was a Shinto monk, so he saw the Goddess of Mercy. I've talked to Catholic healers who see angels, and you know, I've talked to people who see Kuan Yin and things like that. Uh, I think they're probably probably all seeing the same energy or a similar form of energy and then creating something in their mind um, uh, to make that uh, accessible. Although I could be wrong about that. And um, Hiroyuki Aabe could be chatting specifically to the goddess of mercy for all I know. But that's his backstory. Um, and he did something that I recognized as an <clears throat> in clinic, he was putting chi into the acupuncture points and at one point he had me needle a point for frozen shoulder on a patient with frozen shoulder and you're an acupuncturist so you know the point for frozen shoulder is on the lower leg and I um, put that point in and then he put his hand over my hand on the needle and the amount of energy he was putting running through my hand and into the needle was shocking and I realized oh I'm a baby, I have so much work to do Mm -hmm. Um, and he worked very hard to get to that point. And then the other guy, um, Master Kawakami, was a yogi, a very disciplined yogi. Now, he was not drinking or smoking. He was getting up at four and meditating and lifting weights. He had been... Um, Uh, Mr. Japan like weightlifting in 1979 and then decided to focus on his insides rather than his outsides and he was an extremely disciplined practitioner of yoga and he was able to expand his consciousness um through meditation in ways that were very profound um he you know um was extremely psychic um he he seemed almost magical to me Mm -hmm. and he was in his um I think he's almost 80, and out of everybody, he was the person I most wanted to go back and study with. He was on an island off the south coast of Japan, and I will eventually get back. And I said to him, Sifu, I I want to come and study with you. Can I come and study? And he said, oh, you don't need to hurry. I'm going to live till I'm 120. And I thought, well, I actually kind of believe him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> He'll outlive us all well right. bo harvey right. he was he was a different type of healer altogether um but it, it, they were disciplined in their own way
0: <laughs> so with abe the monk as he's generating chi on the acupuncture point, would he explain it as acting as a conduit for a more Uh, universal energy or is he generating it internally
1: Um, no Uh, although there is a lot of internal chi generation involved in acting as a conduit, funnily enough, (laughs) if your chi is your body's intelligence, part of, you know, part of what qigong masters do is develop their chi in order to be that open and be able to resonate like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, but no, he was bringing it from outside um, and, or his perception was that he was bringing it from outside. And um, he would—I uh, have video that when we get together, Jack, I'll have to show you. But he would click his fingers and um, uh, touch and poke and <laughs> and uh, on the—I began to get a sense of what he was channeling because on my last day with him, and I tell this story at the end of my book. But he said to me, um, "Would you like me to open your chakras?" And as a Westerner, I took this rather lightly, uh, which I regretted. I was like, "Sure, you can open my chakras," um, but it was a huge deal and his students were completely shocked because, you know, normally people study with him for a long time before he opens his chakras and it's a big deal. And um, he uh, opened my chakras, I shut my eyes, I was sitting down and I could feel pulling inside my body. I knew where his hands were, I could feel it inside. Um, it was a very strange feeling and I have video of this. Noah took video while all this was going on. And then I opened my eyes and I, I saw the world differently is all I can tell you. Um, I looked, I was in a room full of his students and suddenly instead of being solid, I could see the light emanating from them. They looked like movement, like light. And I, they looked like energy condensed into matter, which is what I'd written about in my whole book, but been quite theoretical about. And I could see they beautiful light and the way it connected us. And in the book that takes me into a discussion of biophotons because we do have light in every cell. And interestingly in cancer cells that light dissipates, it, it diminishes or if not goes out altogether. So um, uh, not that I know whether I was seeing biophotons or not. And I adjusted finally. I stopped seeing everybody as light, but I never quite went back to seeing everybody the same way again is all I can tell you. It had more of a profound effect on me than all the thinking I did while I wrote this book and I did a lot of thinking Mm. and I'm a heady kind of person anyway. Uh, But that physical experience probably affected me more than anything um, and how I am in the world. And um, it gave me a trust and a sense of safety that I had not had before I, I, I experienced that.
0: He was also the gentleman that um, put your heart back into, uh, into sync, right? You have a, a tachycardia attack.
1: Um, yes, yes. I have Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which means I have a genetic heart defect. Um, uh, I like to, it means I have an extra layer of conductive um, uh, cells in my heart. Uh, So I like to say I have extra heart chi, but Mm. the truth is it's always given me trouble. I have uh, bouts of tachycardia, they can get horrible. I end up having to go to hospital and they have to stop my heart with a drug called adenosine. And it's been a problem and it seemed to be exacerbated by what I was doing in clinic. Something about the way I was modulating my autonomic nervous system in order to um, go into the same frequency. I was using my vagus nerve in some way, and I wasn't necessarily skilled or trained. I trained myself and um, uh, I uh, I would set off this tachycardia that results from the Wolf Parkinson White. And it was actually the day he had opened my chakras. We went to a Shabu Shabu restaurant in um, Kobe and it was hot, you know, Shabu Shabu is, you have a pot and it's bubbling and everybody throws things into the pot and people were drinking beer and they were getting rowdy and some people were smoking, which people do in restaurants in Japan. And I started to feel quite lightheaded and then my heart started to, to race and uh, normally I would have to go to, I can sometimes stop it with balsava maneuvers like rubbing my carotid and things, but normally it ends up with me in an emergency room. So I was starting to panic and um, Hiroyuki Abe asked my husband what was up with me and he told him and he leaned over the shabu shabu pot and he pointed two fingers like a gun at my heart and I felt it and my heart went back into rhythm. Just boom. And my heart never goes back into rhythm like that. I've had this many times and it always just slows down over time and uh, unless they give me adenosine in which case they shock it back into rhythm. Um, but I'd never had that happen at all. And it was the last time my heart did that. Uh, and uh, that was two years ago now, I, uh, almost. Uh, uh, and um, that, was, that was that, which is interesting.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. (laughs) It was a good party for you to be at.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He's a useful man to know.
0: Um,
1: The United States actually. And so I will keep everybody posted, but he's a, he's a good man. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I was going to bring that up. In fact, in the beginning of your book, you talked about early in your experience of energy healing in your clinic, that it seemed like your symptoms were exacerbated by actually achieving this resonance. You're also, um, uh, exacerbating the symptoms of, of your syndrome. Uh, and, and, and was it, again, w- was your body unprepared for that alignment or uh, that experience, or is it just that you have that condition and, and so it's, uh, you're somewhat at risk for um, or having symptoms when you're in this resonant state?
1: I think it's a bit of both. Uh, You know, I struggled about whether to put that in because I didn't want to frighten people because I think I was a bit of a unique case because I have this unstable heart rhythm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I did put it in because A, it's the truth and B, I think it gives us a clue as to what we're doing. Yeah. Because I think, I think for me, it made me understand that I was modulating between my parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system via the vagus nerve um, in order to achieve this resonance. And I was doing It through the breath, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I was kind of, um, uh, I don't even know why I started to do it. I think I felt an energy coming out of my hands, the patients could feel it, and then I sort of taught myself what would make it stronger and what would make it less. Hmm. And um, to start with, I wasn't very good at it. I think <laughs> my body wasn't trained, oh. and um, so occasionally we'd have a mishap in the clinic, and I would get tachycardic, which is you know never a good look in front of your patients. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know that, but I sort of learnt. I I worked my way through that and clearly it didn't kill me. So all is well. But I do think I was a bit of a special case. I don't think people need to be too worried about it unless they have a heart defect like me. I already had an electrical issue with my heart. But I also found things, Jack, like if I got too ego invested, um, uh, the energy would dissipate. So if I started to want to prove in any way, even if I just wanted to help the patient too much, if I started to direct it, it would get less. So if I started to think, oh, please let this patient get pregnant, which is my ego making it much smaller, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole experience in some ways, um, it would get less, which I think is also significant. Some letting go of your ego's wish to control is part of this and was common amongst um, most of the healers I looked at.
0: Yeah, and I think that came through really uh, clearly, um, particularly in, in uh, again, Dr. Bankson's work of his rapid imagery cycling, um, where you really are intentionally distracting your intentions, really, for the patient by focusing on. I, I found this very refreshing, frankly, that he wanted you to create or trained you to create 20 very, very positive personal images really what we would call selfish things, right? I mean, your first one was a house on a beach, right? I mean, I think that's everybody's first one, right? (laughs) Uh, And then you have, and so you cycle through these images while you're doing the hands-on work um, so that you're not, you know, uh, just like you said, either your ego's involved or you're praying so hard for this person to get better. It's really letting the energy flow through you.
1: Yes, that's exactly it. And and Dr. Bangston does teach the technique and I give it in the book actually. He yeah. very generously just let me um, uh, write it all out in the book so that people can uh, teach themselves to do this. I, I, w- I did his course and learned it a weekend. It takes a while to practice it, but yes, he gets you to flash images of your kind of selfish wants, not your nice heartfelt wants like world peace and yeah. better government and stuff like that. But you're just like... I don't know, purses and beach and houses, <laughs> right. uh, uh, s- uh, material wants uh, and things like that. Uh, and then you flash them really quickly. And that appears to do two things. One, it projects you into the future a little bit, which is a place where the patient is healed mm. already. Um, and two, it stops your... Uh, ego from interfering with whatever's going on and it generates a measurable frequency that comes out of um, the left hand in, in the case of Bill's technique mm-hmm. and I have always done qigong predominantly with my right hand and so I remember when I took Bill's course I was like well I'm a righty so I'm not going to you know the, the energy will come out to my right hand and he said oh no no I'll make you into a lefty, you'll see. And it was absolutely true. The energy comes out of, if you do Bill's technique, whatever it does to possibly the right side of your brain means the energy comes out of the left side of your hand. And when he puts both hands around the cages of the mice, the mice go to the left hand. And I've seen video of this. Uh, they they know uh, which hand is producing the they the energy that's good for them and they actually push each other out of the way trying to get to it and then when they're healed they stop they, they couldn't be bothered anymore Yeah, you know, he puts his hands up and they're just like oh hi <laughs> which is interesting
0: yeah could you put those videos on your website
1: well they're his videos but i think he may have them on his website oh, i think they may be out there Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, they're, they're his and they're very cool. Yeah. He tells me that he was once treating a child who had an eye disorder and um, the, a, a very little toddler. And uh, the toddler ran in and put his eye by Bill's left hand. So clearly if you're instinctive rather than have, you know, a grown-up who's talked yourself out of a lot of things, right. you pick this up instinctively, mm-hmm. just like the mice or a child.
0: I'm talking about instinctive healers. I think uh, it was uh, Carla Kreft, is i yes. correct, um, who has actually worked with you at your clinic, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, is she still there?
1: She's not. She's um, uh, she's um, roaming the world, is Carla. She, uh, I believe she's in Italy at the moment. Oh. Um, but I met Carla through someone you know well, Heino Fruhoff. Oh,
0: Sure.
1: Heiner told me that Carla was one of the brightest people he'd ever taught. And he told me, you should, you know, get her into your clinic. And so I did. I moved heaven and earth to get Carla into the clinic. She's a naturopath, Mm -hmm. superstar, very Western medical. But she comes from a long line of shaman. Um, She comes from a long line of, she's Peruvian. Her grandma is still in the Amazon um, prescribing herbs. Um, so she has two sides to herself she's really my kind of girl as you can imagine she's very much a Yenova girl I look for people who are very scientifically literate at the Innova center because um, that's the world we live in who have a bit of a mystical bend <laughs> and she was my kind of practitioner and she was the first person to say to me um, you do know that you don't need the needles you can do this with your hands and I was Um, I did kind of know, but I was sort of overwhelmed by the prospect of that, Mm -hmm. as you can imagine. (laughs) Because when I was like, well, I spend a lot of time becoming an (laughs) (laughs) activist, I'm licensed and it's credible, and why on earth would I give that up Mm -hmm. and move on to something that isn't licensed and is, you know, like the Wild West? Um, uh, But she was the person who recognized that I was having this experience where I was channeling more and more energy and that it was coming through me. Mm -hmm.
0: So you're still using needles?
1: I am still using needles. What I realized is that Um, uh, Chinese medicine and acupuncture in particular is one of the oldest forms of energy medicine that's been continuously practiced and it's the only form of energy medicine that is licensed and board certified and that gives us all a degree of safety. It it means that our fellow practitioners have reached a certain educational standard and um, that they are bound by a code of ethics by their licensure and I think that's a, a good thing and I also feel that Chinese medicine and gives me structure, Um, diagnostic structure. um, uh, It keeps me disciplined. It gives me a way of measuring patient progress, which I really appreciate. Um, And we stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, You know, we have all of that depth of experience Um, going back thousands of years that we get to plow through and take from and learn from. And so it would be, I think it it would be utterly regrettable for me to turn my back on Chinese medicine. And what I did was I just, uh, it it just deepened my practice in this way. So I practice a very energetic form of acupuncture, but I think a a lot of practitioners do, even if they don't have words for it.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things just from a practical standpoint is that while you might now be in a place where you could attract patients who would see you without needles, you know, as an energy healer, let's say, most people wouldn't, right? So the acupuncture is a great calling card. People are interested in what we do as acupuncture, so they're willing to come and see us. Uh, And then that gives us an entree into doing any other techniques that we might have at our disposal, but it's, 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 um, the most recognizable form of energy healing and people are willing to experience it where if i put up a shingle saying energy healer (laughs) you're probably not going to get as many patients
1: i know then what level of healer you are you could be anything really Uh, you just can hang a shingle whereas uh, an acupuncturist has to be licensed but i also the needles i i've done this you know, consistently for a long time. And I've always been a busy practitioner. So the needles are, are, are part of me now, <laughs> they feel like an extension of my key. Um, and it's very instinctive for me to do acupuncture, having done it over and over again. And uh, as I say, in the book, acupuncture works. And as you know, I have an entire chapter explaining the electromagnetics of acupuncture, and why it conducts Qi or uh, to the best of my ability explaining why it conducts chi and i still think it's one of the most profound systems of energy medicine there is um having gone all over the world and looked at some really amazing healers,
0: one of the favorite conversations i've had um in my career was with michael smith um who's you know has since passed away but dr smith was always a big proponent of using big acupuncture points right you know our the ones that we all know, and put the needles in, get good chi, and then get out of the way, yeah. all right? He goes, acupuncture works. You don't have to, you know, hang around. <laughs> um, and so I, I, that always gave me a great confidence in our medicine because it doesn't rely on the particular talents that someone like you or, or, or uh, Abe might have, right? I mean, while they're developing that, they can – affect very good medicine by you kneeling know, stomach 36 or n12 and you know go and have a cup of coffee
1: yes well you do well you go on to the next patient if you're a busy practitioner yeah, exactly but i believe it's important um to give the patient some time on their own to rebalance their own energy field. Um, And so I do get out of the way. I do some energy work over the needles, but then I give them a buzzer so they can call me if they need me. Mm -hmm. But I get out of the way and let them heal themselves uh, in response to the prompt and you're right the big needle the big points the big points for, the, for a reason uh, i always tell my team that the big herbal formulas the big herbal formulas for a reason and the big points the big points for a reason and in the book i explored their um uh, origins as part of embryology you know that they True. um if you lay over a map of the um embryological um staging post um, uh, embryos have to communicate electro- electromagnetically they don't communicate through the blood or the nervous system and um, they they create a polarity as a little staging post and then they bud off the next bit and if you lay over a map of the major acupuncture points over those embryological um, um, centers energy centers they are exactly in the same place so I think what was used to create us can be still used once we're here to um, uh, regulate it, which is kind of interesting.
0: One of the ongoing conversations, I might even say debates in our field, is the phenomenon of de chi, which you reference in your book and is very well known to acupuncturists and probably even now uh, the general populace and certainly people who've gotten acupuncture, particularly acupuncture of a certain type. Um, And, um, yet there are, and, and the chi is, uh, is the, for those who don't know, is the sensation of the chi grabbing the needle. It's often a dull sensation, can actually be somewhat you know, painful, it would be a little strong, but it, it's a very noticeable effect at the needle when we stimulate the needle. But yet there are acupuncturists who don't. Um, uh, practice that style of needling and do very superficial um, style of needling um, with what we would say is without a, a achieving the chi sensation at the point, but yet they also um, get results. Um, do you have a particular preference in your in your practice um, advice for practitioners um, uh, regarding this particular concept?
1: Well, I you know acupuncture Um, find different ways to affect qi and I always um, talk about that in my practice because I employ 18 acupuncturists and they all do it slightly differently and I do not micromanage that I think that acupuncturists develop their own relationship with qi and effective acupuncturists are effective acupuncturists and they you know they develop their own style and I'm all for doing that for me it has always been important to get some dirty Um, And uh, I was um, influenced, and I wrote in the book about um, the work of Dr. Helen Langerban at the University of Vermont Medical School. And what she noticed was that there was a greater pull force at the acupuncture points, about just under 20% greater, And that um, uh, when they looked at, they did experiments on rat abdominal wall. And when the needle is stimulated, which is what we do to get dirty, twisted, the fibers Um, uh, of connective tissue um, wrapped around the needle like spaghetti on a fork Mm -hmm. and that increased its electroconductivity Mm -hmm. which I think uh, I found um, compelling as research and I think that twisting we do increases the electroconductivity of the acupuncture point and then the the transmission of that um, goes through connective tissue through the fascia. Um, which is very electroconductive. It has a high water content because it has a high collagen content, and so it conducts uh, um uh, electric um, sensation deep into the body. So for me it 's been important to get dirty, but I have seen some extremely impressive uh, Japanese style acupuncturists, and all I can think is that for them, they um, uh, promote electroconductivity in a different way. Possibly more energetically and less mechanically.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that um, uh, we've worked with Kiko Matsumoto, obviously for a long time um, through the Pacific Symposium, and and she talks about uh, you know a controversy in terms of the actual translation of the chi, and that you know the chi needs to arrive at the point, and that it really can be the practitioner's chi, bringing it to you know bringing the chi to that point, and and really then. It really ties in with your, your energetic healing, the theme of your book. So, I mean, it, it can, as you say, we don't. Um, uh, in fact, we teach both methods at Pacific College, um, and tend to do kind of a hybrid, um, where it's a not quite as strong a stimulation as a as a Chinese practitioner in China would would utilize, but do generally expect some de qi cessation. But then we also have a very popular Japanese acupuncture track and and clinical experience as well. So I I think it is. I think you made that point that it is important for the practitioner to practice in a way that they find they're most comfortable, that they're getting the best results rather than trying to practice in someone else's style.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think back to Hiroyuki Abe when he put his energy down the needle Um, That was his energy affecting the point. It wasn't the mechanical twisting and making the point more electroconductive. So we we have options, as we always do in in traditional Asian medicine. We have options. We can um, increase the electroconductivity of the point mechanically, or we can use our chi on the point. Mm. And uh, I think that might be what a lot of Japanese-style practitioners are doing. And um, both work. And, um, uh, you
0: know, people get good results. So I'm all for it. Hey, Jill, kind of just uh, starting to maybe wrap things up a little bit here. Um, I mentioned in my notes to you that we are developing what we're calling the Department of Professionalism at Pacific College. And it's really going to be analogous to our um, evidence-informed practice um, project where we infused evidence-informed practice throughout the curriculum in many classes to where students um, do adopt a habit of considering what the evidence is um, when they're um, doing their differential diagnosis and treatment. So that's become quite well implemented into the curriculum. And now what we're doing is trying to infuse professionalism throughout the curriculum um, because it's been my contention that you need to have a certain character, I think, for back, lack of a better word, to be successful in the field. You have to be the kind of person that will engender trust from your patients. And, and, and that, for maybe many of our younger students, um, it takes time to develop. It's not... You know, practice building, let's say, we can offer a course in how to do insurance billing or web design or networking, whatever, but this more character development isn't something that you're going to just sit in a class for 14 or 40 hours and, 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 ac- and accomplish. And so I felt that the curriculum really from day one should have this theme and where the faculty are role modeling and they're expect have a certain expectation of the students, whether it's something as simple as um, being on class on time, being in the clinic and being well um practicing, being well spoken. So there's all these types of things that will infuse the curriculum for four years so that the student doesn't just graduate and go, Oh, now I have to be a professional. Right, yeah. that they'll have they'll have used that opportunity for four years, and and even um, not only develop those kind of what we would consider typical professional um, uh, characteristics, but the um, the the compassion, the the um, uh, attentiveness to their patients, um, really the healing persona. So they'll have four years of that. So you've now been in practice for. 20 plus years, um, what can you share to that department? If you are teaching our students, what kind of, what would you tell them are the things that they need to be to be professional?
1: Um, I'm so glad you're teaching that, incidentally. Um, uh, I think it's really, really important. Um, There are a lot of things. (laughs) One, and you touched on it, you do need to be reliable. So if you're at a place in your life where you're kind of coming and going and traveling a lot and things like that, it's hard to build a practice. So you may want to blog or do online coursework. It doesn't mean you can't use your degree just yet and then you'll come back to practice. But a practice is a bit of a commitment. You know, you're there and you're a resource for your patients. You have to show up every day, even if you don't have patients. I think I did when I started my practice. I showed up, I ran my business, I was there. Should anyone want to see me, I would have been there. Um, And um, that's how it built. So I think being reliable is really important. I think it's important to be able to communicate this medicine in a way that resonates with modern American patients. So spending some time working on how to language things in a way that isn't alienating or scary, but gets across the the point, I think is really important. Uh, And good case management is important. And good case management, um, what I do when I do an intake is I set short and long-term goals and I move those through, we have electronic medical records, and I move that through the medical record with me and I measure every week where I'm getting to. So in a fertility case, fertility being something I'm known for, um, I, you know, the long-term goal may be a live birth, but the short-term goal uh, is probably, you know, a 28-day cycle, no spotting, mid-cycle, no PMS, that kind of thing. And I share those short-term goals with the patient because we're kind of working on them together, yeah? That so requires them to do things too. Mm-hmm. And then I troubleshoot. And in a fertility case, I use the period week to do that. And I go back over the last cycle with the patient and I, um, uh, we, we talk about what has worked and what hasn't. And I'm you know totally honest about that. And I say, oh, you know, I was hoping you wouldn't have PMS by now. So I'm going to change this and perhaps you could up your exercise here or, you know, uh, it then becomes a conversation between us. and We're kind of in the trenches troubleshooting this thing together. And um, I, I look ahead in the case at all times, you know, uh, and these days I'm in and out of clinic. And so my cases are often picked up by other, you know, bunchers, and I leave them notes like you know when this patient gets a regular cycle I'm then going to give them this as a follicular formula or you know I leave I, I have a plan for where we're going so I'm assessing as we go and that just is experience I think and I also know where I'm going and one of the things I notice. Is because I employ a lot of acupuncturists and they're all awesome but some of my team have been with me for 10 years and they were acupuncturists for 10 years before that and they're very solid in what they do and they just sound authoritative you know if you've done it a long time you do know what you're doing and I noticed that um, they get more compliance out of patients mm. and it's because it's harder to argue with them they just sound authoritative not mm. bossy kind but solid like do this and this will happen and that i think comes with experience but it's what i try and teach my younger colleagues is um you know you need to sound authoritative you know if you say you can take these herbs if you want to um they probably won't want to but if you say you take these herbs i'll see you next week what i'm expecting they'll do is blah blah and blah blah and blah blah and then we'll assess when we see each other and where we're going is here and i'd like to see once a week for at least eight weeks and then we'll reassess there's something about that plan that feels very soothing to everybody you know that that gives the patient a degree of confidence um i think and the other thing I always tell my stuff, is when people are better, let them go. They, um, people don't necessarily know they're better till you tell them, uh, for some reason, and they become very attached to you. But the point isn't to keep people dependent on you. Your best adverse are the people who are out there feeling well, telling everybody, oh, my f was amazing. I used to have back pain, but I don't anymore. And so um, I do compete with people. And I do that, you know, um, hopefully they come and I say, look, I don't think we need to see each other every week anymore and if they say oh my god but I love this I might say well you're welcome to come <laughs> and we can work on other things or maybe you could come once a month but mostly ideally I like to see and I learned this from Alex Tiberi um uh, I like to see them four times a year at the change of the season so I send people back into the world and I say come and see me four times a year unless you need me in which case I'm right here um and that gives me it's a bit like a GP doing an annual physical. That gives me a chance to take a look at the patient holistically four times a year and see the things that are sliding out. It also reminds the patient to come and see me when something's going wrong, uh, rather than eventually remember when things have gone badly awry and hopefully we can sort of head things off early that way. And so that is how I run it. And that is what has worked for me and worked for my team. And the other thing that you see, I have a lot to say about this because <laughs> I've just done this a long time. The yeah. other thing that I think um, young practitioners need to learn and you may as well learn it in school is how to do volume calmly and efficiently where you can. Now, some people complicate it and they need a lot of time and that it, it is what it is. But um, a lot of what we do is pretty straightforward, actually. For us. We, we know what we're doing and we, we can get there pretty easily. And there is some skill involved in having several rooms going at once and not looking like you're running around sort of, you know, as if the barn is burning, because you're not. And being calm and measured and making sure that people feel heard, but moving things along in a, in a way. And I think that takes some skill. I, I can see four an hour easily. Um, uh, but I don't. I see three now because I'm old and I'm a bit tired and, uh, <laughs> and I have other responsibilities. But you should be able to, to do a bit of volume uh, and that helps um, your bottom line. That helps you <laughs> feed yourself and pay all your bills if you can. And it's not as hard as you would think. Um, uh, and people are often shocked when they first come to us. But we make everything at Unova really simple you know they, uh, we have electronic medical records we have a really efficient front desk we have a very smooth we have ergonomically designed rooms these days that were designed by architects specifically so we're making everything smooth for ourselves uh, and and we're we're staying calm but we're seeing a reasonable amount of people and the patients have no idea and I know this because one of my colleagues Ann Brown who is a Pacific New York graduate who's an awesome acupuncturist was once treating a patient and the patient said to her what do you do when you leave me do you sit outside and meditate about me (laughs) which is a lovely thought. (laughs) <laughs> but of course quite what poor Anne was doing because she's going go to the next person but the fact that she was giving her that impression that she mm-hmm. was so calm and centered mm-hmm. that the patient assumed she was just sitting outside the door meditating is um, a, a lovely thought i wish mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> uh, thank you so much for those words of wisdom i, I hope all of the uh, students and in fact any acupuncturists that are in fact any healers you know there are many chiropractors or naturopaths that could also who are building their practices would benefit from from that advice um hey just a, a personal curiosity uh, before we before we say goodbye um last time we talked i think you were um growing your practice quite a bit and expanding your sites um what's what's going on with your clinic
1: yes we did we took on investment um and which is a big step for me because okay. i owned 100% of UNOVA, and I sold uh, 25% of it. And we um, opened a new clinic in Brooklyn, which is run by uh, another Pacific College New York graduate, Christopher Peacock, Dr. Christopher Peacock, who is awesome, and he has a wonderful team over there. And they're creating something different to our Flatiron. Um, since you came to visit us, Jack, we've moved our, our flagship too, to 17th and 5th Avenue. And we had a brand refresh, we have a lovely new website. We kept things exciting for ourselves. As I said, business is in transition, it's failing. Um, So um, our Flatiron flagship is very uh, busy, although smooth and calm, but uh, we're treating a lot of patients. In Brooklyn, we're creating more of a community resource. We have a classroom space. We're planning to uh, provide childcare so moms can come in. And leave their, their little ones in a, a, a with a babysitter while they have their treatments. Um, it's a different kind of atmosphere. We're already building the next one, um, which is on 58th Street and 3rd Avenue. And that one opens, um, relatively soon, uh, in, you know, within a couple of months. That's already being built out. Um, and then I think we'll breathe. Um, yeah. <laughs> I expect Same we'll take a uh, and that'll be it for the year. And then next year, um, we will probably open another one in New York. And then um, I think we'd like to look at um, expanding, maybe coming uh, back to California. Oh, uh, yeah, there's a bit welcome. of me that's a California girl at heart, so uh, you know, maybe LA. I've been doing going back and forwards quite a bit with mm. this book. There's been a lot of interest in my book in LA, oh, yeah. so maybe we'll do that. But um, as I said at the beginning of this, you have to, it has to be an alignment for everyone. It has to be a kind of win-win. And there is a next delicious step and you know it when it shows up. Mm. And Brooklyn was our next delicious step. Mm. Christopher was the perfect person to run it. And uh, it's, it's, Going beautifully because it's in alignment, and then we'll take our next delicious step, and we'll we'll keep going like that.
0: <laughs> Fantastic! Well, congratulations on that. And all All New Yorkers know now you have to be in Brooklyn if you want to stay hip, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, our bro, yeah, our Brooklyn office is lovely. Actually, it's shop front yeah. on a leafy street full of brownstones. It's uh-huh. uh, I've I've been considering going and working out there myself. It's like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, Joe. So, well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us and the audience that we have. Um, it's been a super pleasure. Um, congratulations on the book. It's it's fantastic. I r- encourage everybody to read it. It's a pretty easy read um, and very entertaining. Um, and you know, it's summertime. I think it's a good book. I think it actually has relevance beyond um, the the healing encounter. That I think many of the techniques and and the um, just the spirit that's conveyed can be applied in any kind of personal relationship. And so, you know, whether it's with your family members, spouses, kids, all those things are applicable. So you don't have to be an acupuncturist or any kind of healer to appreciate the book. So um, I think you'll do really, really well with it. Um, and uh, I, I, I hope see I hope to see you well, I'll see you at the very latest. I'll see you in October, November when you're out here for a symposium. Everybody's looking forward to seeing you then. And um, please give my regards to Noah. Tell him I said hello. I
1: will. Thank yeah. you so much. This is actually such a fun conversation.
0: Oh yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>
1: President of Pacific College, when I went through Pacific College, there's something kind of lovely about chatting all these years later. You remember me when I was in OM1. <laughs> yes,
0: I do. Yeah. Well, you were a star then, too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was taught by the lovely Alex Tippery at OM1, and as you know, I dedicated this book to him. I'm uh, very grateful.
0: I, I gotta say, we were really touched by that. Um, we miss him every day. Um, but what a treasure he was to have in our lives.
1: Yes, fabulous practitioner.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, Jill.
1: Thank you. Uh, have a good week. See you too. You. Take care.
0: Bye-bye. Bye.